Luke chapter 8, verse 22. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, "'What have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me.' For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus then asked him, "'What is your name?' And he said, "'Legion.' For many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission, and then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home. Declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now when Jesus had returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the the crowds are surrounding you and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceived that power had gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. 
And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. Today is a special day in our family. Um, it's what we call Gotcha Day. Uh, about nine years and a couple of days ago, Amanda and I jumped on a 16-hour flight across the world without much idea of what was ahead of us. And we landed in Hong Kong. And um, this is kind of how the itinerary the itinerary for the trip went. The first day we got adjusted to um, the fact that we were on a completely different time schedule. Night was day and day was night. The second day we traveled across the city uh, to the home, a uh, home, I say home, um, to the small apartment uh, in a 60 to 80 story high rise amongst a set of five 60 or 80 story high rises where Silas's foster family lived, and we met Silas for the first time. The next day, we came back, and they gave us Silas for the day, and we went around and spent some time with them. The third day, we came back. That would be nine years ago today, and they said, okay, sign here. And they gave us Silas. They said, good luck. And that was it. That was it. Gotcha day. And it sounds, you know, it sounds so adventurous. On this side of, of things, nine years later, it sounds like, oh, it's a no-brainer. Of course you do that. Of course the Watermans uh, uh, go and adopt a child from Hong Kong. Of course you fly halfway across the world and do, of course you do all of these things. Look, it's, you know, well, it's easy knowing what we know now, but I can tell you that during the process, during the year to 15 months of going through the adoption process, figuring out how are we going to pay for these things, going, coming down to the very last week or two and realizing we were like $5,000 short to get to Hong Kong, be there and come back, all of these things, I'm telling you, it was scary. It was scary to sit there and think, if we do this, what's it, how's it going to change our family? How's it, what, what effect is it going to have on our two kids we already have? How are we going to afford this? What is this going to look like in a year or 10 years or, or 30 years for our life? It's scary not knowing exactly what Silas's medical needs would be. We didn't really have much idea. It's scary. It's easy on this side to go, oh yeah, that's great. But you know that you know that it's difficult. You've had situations in your life that you've walked in to that are out of your control. 
Not just ones that you have gone into with your eyes open going, okay, I'm going to do this, but, but situations that have gone out of control that you didn't expect to go out of control, right? The stakes in every story in our passages this morning are literally life and death. And the situations are out of the control of the people in which Jesus interacts. Perhaps whatever you're dealing with right now in your life that feels out of control, perhaps it's the stakes aren't physical life and death, but my guess is you have had or you have some area in your life right now where things that you hold most dear, where your very way, way of life, life as you know it, is threatened, and it's scary. It's really scary. Life is littered with scary, out-of-control situations. And then it becomes easy to begin to think that that fear that we are experiencing is, is somehow an indictment on God. God, how, how could you allow me to go through such difficult and scary why would you want me to be so in such a, a fearful situation? Why would you want me to be afraid like this? God, if you cared about me, if you wanted me to trust you, if you wanted me to have faith in you, have confidence in you, wouldn't you make my life less scary, not more scary? You see, scary situations have actually been common for all believers in all times, and we can see that. In Scripture, scary situations are common for everyone who trusted God throughout the Bible. I, 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 just as one example, you think, you think David came out of the womb ready to slay Goliath? You know, slingshot in hand? No, we know from 1 Samuel 17, David himself says, No, God let bears and lions steal my sheep, that I might take them by the beard and slay them. And know that God would deliver me. It's easy on the far side of Goliath. It's easy on the far side of the bears and lions to go, yeah, of course God's going to deliver me. Of course it's going to work out. But my guess is, even for David, the first time that that bear crept up and took a sheep, he was scared to death. Scary moments force us to decide if we will trust God or we will trust something else. And what I want you to think about this morning is this. Do you want smaller problems in your life or do you want bigger answers? Do you want easier circumstances or do you want a greater Christ? Which would you prefer? Most of the best things in my life have come out of the scariest situations where I had to learn to trust God. And so, my sermon in a sentence for this morning is this. Our fears do not reveal shortcomings in Jesus' care, but shortcomings in our faith. Let me say that again. Our fears do not reveal shortcomings in Jesus' care for us. 
but shortcomings in our faith in Him. I want to ask three questions this morning that hopefully will reframe our current circumstances or your future circumstances so that they develop faith in Christ rather than just being swallowed up in fear. Here's the first question I want you to consider this morning. Is Jesus asleep or are you sleeping on Jesus? Is Jesus asleep or are you sleeping on Jesus? So the disciples, they get in the boat. Jesus says, hey, let's go across. Let's go across here and they get in the boat and Jesus decides to take a nap. I'm assuming he's probably pretty worn out. He's been preaching. He's been healing people. People will hardly leave him alone. The only time he can get a wink of sleep is on the boat. And so it's sort of like, uh, you know, it makes me think of when you go home from church today. You know, the kids have been sitting quietly in the pews all morning. Just, uh, you know, it's not like the energy isn't there. It's just been like spinning inside of them you know, building up steam, ready to, to like unload. And so you, you go home and your, your wife says, hey, honey, I just really need a nap. Okay, that's fine. And then, and, the, and then the energy descends on you. And I'm like, Amanda, Amanda, I'm perishing. Help me, someone. This is out of control. Well, they go across the Sea of Galilee. And as, as, it, as it were, uh, uh, you know, we, we think of lakes here, you know, it's like, flat land, and then there's like a lake out of nowhere, and then flat land. But there, there's mountains all around the Sea of Galilee with these deep valleys, right? And so sometimes the wind or a storm would come through, and that wind would come through that valley and just be funneled. And if it hits you just right when you're on your boat on the sea, it would be like a a horrible, it'd be a torrential storm about to to capsize your boat if it got you just right. And so that's what happens. it seems to the disciples as they're going across, and, and Jesus is sleeping through it. The disciples come awake him and tell him that they're perishing. Now, now, they must have had some belief that Jesus could save them or could do something about it. Maybe they were just going, hey, Jesus, you told us to go across here. Now we're perishing. What, what gives? I don't know if you felt like that. Christ has told you, you, you go... Man, I know that God told me to come and do this. I know that God told me to go here. I know that God told me to take this job or, or to make this decision. I'm just quite certain of it. But now that I'm doing it, Jesus, I'm perishing. If you've ever felt like that. Jesus wakes up and he rebukes the wind and the waves. He says that it's calm. It's calm. It's not like the winds died down a touch. It's not like the waves died down a touch, but it's calm. And he says, simply, where's your faith? Not faith, and I don't, I don't think we're to take faith here as, you know, oftentimes when we talk about faith, we think, you know, salvific faith, you know, that we would believe on Christ and be saved, justified, right? But I think the faith that he's talking about here is an applied faith. And a place, a faith in that saving Christ for this particular situation. 
faith that for the disciples needed to grow and deepen. But, but more than that, I think there's something very specific, and I think we see it in the disciples' response. Why is that kind of faith in short supply for them? And why is it often in short supply for us? Is it because Jesus is sleeping while the storms of life are crashing on us? Is it because our life is taking on water and the threat of drowning and sinking is imminent? Is that why we lack faith? Is is it the circumstances around us that cause us to lack faith? No, this is how they answer. Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? You see, The problem is we have a small view of Jesus. The problem is not that our issues and our circumstances are big. The problem is our view of Jesus is small. The issue here is the object of our faith. The issue is the object of our faith. What are you trusting on right now? It's not uncommon to hear in the world we live in, people talk about faith. Even in a fairly unbelieving world, we would say, a fairly materialistic world, it's not uncommon to hear people talk about faith in kind of a general sense. Well, you got to have faith to get through life. It's important to have faith. Faith is really important for my life. Those kinds of things, you know, believe. It's not uncommon to hear that. But then when you press in a little bit, you begin to ask, well, faith in what? And the response is sort of like, well, everyone has faith in different things, and that's okay. What's most important is that you just have faith in something. Just have faith in something, the world will say. That that, that just possessing faith is what matters. Let me ask you, if if the only thing that matters is possessing some kind of faith, then what do you actually have faith in? Yourself. Yourself. You then are the object of your faith. You are actually not trusting in anything else outside of you. You're actually just trusting in yourself. I don't make a very good object for faith. The reason I'm in this problem is because I was trusting in myself. I need to trust in something else. The disciples, they thought that they were just fine navigating that boat across the Sea of Galilee until the winds and the waves came, right? And then they realized, oh, oh, we don't need, need Jesus to tell us to go across the lake. We need Jesus to get us across the lake. We can talk about Jesus, Christians, church, talking to you right now. We can talk about Jesus real good. (laughs) We can sound real good when we do it. Throwing out Jesus' name, oh, it's because of Jesus. Oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus. But when push comes to shove, what are you really trusting in? Is it actually Jesus or is it yourself with a nice Jesus veneer? Oh, you're glad to have Jesus in your boat somewhere, but, but Jesus, just stay, stay down deck. Stay under there. 
I'm, I'm happy to have you on my boat along for the ride. And oh, I'll, I'll maybe even I'll listen to you when you say to go, you know, where the destination is. You know, I'm glad for you to say my destination is heaven. That's great. But now that we're on the ride, if you could just stay below deck, that would be great. I'll take the helm. Thank you very much. And then things go haywire. Jesus, I thought you were supposed to be with me. How quickly does Jesus become our scapegoat? But don't worry, he's used to being our scapegoat. There's only one rightful object of our faith, friends. This is what I want you to understand. In every situation, in each and every moment of our life, there's only one rightful object of our faith, and it's not you and me. Anything else that we're trusting in is dust. We're setting ourselves up for the worst kind of fail, failure. So here's the deal. Jesus will allow the storms of, he knows that, he'll allow the storms of your life to overwhelm you, not to do you harm, not because he doesn't care, but because he actually does care, because he sees what you're trusting in, even when you don't understand what you're trusting in. He sees that you're not trusting in him, even when you think that you are, are because you're paying lip service to it. He cares about you. So he'll allow the storms of life to overwhelm you. He'll allow the scary situations so that you will come running to him again. And we think it's to wake him up. We think we're running to him to wake him up, but really we're running to him so that he can wake us up. That's what needs to happen. Listen, listen, that, that scary situation in your life, whatever it is, that relationship that's gone awry, or that decision that didn't work out, or that whatever it is, is it Jesus that needs to wake up, or is it you that needs to wake up? I promise you Jesus isn't asleep. Maybe it's you that need to wake up and get on your knees in prayer asking for that which always came from him in, in anyway. So let's be honest. The reason we'd rather have Jesus below deck is because we want to be in charge of our own ship, right? And so we come to question number two. Are Jesus' commands crazy or are you out of your mind? Are Jesus' commands crazy or are you out of your mind? Jesus gets to the other side of the lake and what happens right away? He is, uh, uh, I don't know how you describe this, um, confronted uh, maybe with this man with demons. And there's a few things I want you to notice about this naked demon-possessed man. I've never had a naked demon-possessed man, uh, you know, confront me. I would guess that that'd be a little unsettling. Jesus takes it in stride, so that's why he's Jesus and I'm not. I suppose, among other reasons. So the first thing I want you to notice is the man is in a dire situation. He's, he's mad. He's naked. He lives among tombs, it says, not in a house, and has been that way for a long time. They try to restrain the man. They try to put shackles and chains on him. They try to put him under guard, and what happens? He breaks the chains, and the demons drive him out into the desert. I don't think any of these images that the Bible is using here are just 
uh, happenstance, shackles, tombs, deserts. The other thing we see here is that Jesus has the authority. In contrast to the disciples on the boat who go to Jesus but don't get who he is fully, these demons recognize exactly who Jesus is, don't they? Right away, they understand that they must submit to him. They fall at his feet. What do you have to do with us? Son of the Most High God. Leave us alone, in other words. Could you just not bother us? Immediately, they fall. And the emphasis, the, there's emphasis here on, on Jesus' authority. Look at this. Luke informs us that the demon's name is Legion. Legion, a Roman legion would be thousands of soldiers. The, the image that we're supposed to have is, is that this situation is one Jesus against thousands of demons. That's the image we're given. And what happens? The demons immediately fall at his feet. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200, right? They're not even going to try anything. They recognize that he has ultimate authority wherever he is, right? It's a contrast that makes the disciples look foolish. Jesus, who has not only power over all of nature, but over all of supernature, right? Thousands begging for his mercy. The disciples wanted to be with Jesus, but their view of him was too small. The demons know exactly who Jesus is, but they don't want to be with him. They don't want to be with him. The next thing, I really want you to recognize that even demons are under obligation to obey Christ. They're under an obligation. Even demons are under an obligation to obey Christ. Oh, sure, they'll rebel. But when he's standing right in front of them, they're begging for permission. And when he grants it, they've got one option. Do what he granted. They beg to not be sent into the abyss. This is, be, the idea is this spiritual place that would have been for unclean spirits and demons. They don't want to be sent there. So instead, they beg to go to a different unclean place. From tombs to pigs. And Jesus gives them that permission. We think the default position uh, of our lives is that we have freedom to do what we want. And, and so when we say yes to Jesus, we get a gold star, right? Hey, I, I, my, my default from birth is I get to do what I want. Um, but but I've, I've submitted to Jesus. I've, I want Jesus. And so I get a gold star for that. And what we learn here real quickly, is no, you're born under the obligation to obey Christ in every single thing. Everyone is. And any time that you don't, you are in rebellion, just as the demons are in rebellion. But a legion of demons, they, they understand Jesus' authority. That anything other than obeying him is rebellion to the true authority. And so, so then the, the next thing I want you to see in this story is the response of the people of the countryside. Okay? 
They see what happens, or else they're told by those who did see. And they, they come there and they find this man who, who presumably for months, years probably, has been crazy, has broken shackles, has lived naked, has lived in tombs. And they see him clothed in his right mind, sitting calmly at Jesus' feet. And they were afraid. And that's reasonable, right? I mean, imagine if you saw that kind of transformation, that suddenly, and you heard the reports. They were afraid, but they ought to have been equally drawn to the one who had compassionately healed a man that no one could even subdue. Who had, who had brought this man by just a word into his right mind, into a pair of clothes, and at his feet, whom they could not even subdue when they put chains and shackles and put him under guard. Like a small child who sees the power of his father and yet understands the goodness of his father to use that power to protect and to not harm, they ought to have come to Christ's feet as well. But what did they do? They asked Jesus to depart. We're not entirely sure. I mean, we can make some assumptions on why they do that. The text doesn't give us an explicit reason. Perhaps it was the economic loss of the herd of pigs, or perhaps they feared what, what else Jesus might cost to them, right? Or simply they recognized Jesus' authority, and they'd rather kind of rule themselves over on that side of the Sea of Galilee. Whatever it is, Jesus' kingdom comes at a cost, comes at a cost, but the man is clothed, and he's in his right mind. The only alternative to God's kingdom is Satan's. You either, get, you either submit to Christ's kingdom, or you get Satan's kingdom. Those are the two options. You get clothing, or you get naked. You get right mind, or you get crazy. You get go back home to your, into the city, to your family, telling people what I've done for you, or you get live amongst the tombs. When life seems out of control, friends, we're quick to drop God's commands. We're quick to drop His guidance. We're quick to think that we're, our wisdom is wiser, just like the men of the countryside who thought, you know, here, here's a guy who can command legions of demons to leave a crazy guy, but we think it's a better idea to ask him to depart. Now, now tell me, who, who is the craziest person in this part of the story? Is it the demon-possessed man, or is it the people of the countryside? Tell me, who is, who is the craziest person? The person who trusts the world's wisdom or the person who does what God's word says? The God who saved them, the very words of salvation. Who is crazier? Who's in their right mind? You see, the issue here 
The issue in the first story was, we could say, is the object of our faith. The issue here is the extent of our faith. Do you actually trust God with every area of your life? Do you actually trust all that God's word has to say, or are you just trusting him for your ticket to heaven? Do you trust him with only your life then, or do you trust him also with your life now? Does it make any sense to say, yes, I trust Jesus to save me for eternity, but I'll do it my own way right now in this life? That is the most insane thing that we could possibly do. I want you to see this morning, I want to sit on this just for a second, that you might recognize that that is pure insanity. Either you trust Him with your life right now, or what hope do you have for eternity? If you can't trust him for that situation that's scary, that relationship, or that decision, or that job situation, or that family situation, or whatever, if you can't trust him with that, then why in the world are you trusting him with your eternity? I just can't say this emphatically enough. And listen, I do it as well. I wake up and I realize, I've, why am I not trusting God with that? Why am I finding it so difficult to trust Him here? That, that makes no sense, but for some reason, I'm struggling to do it. I know what He's done for me. I know that I was the man under shackles, driven in the desert, living amongst tombs at the edge of death. I know that I was that man. And that God transformed me, clothed me, propped me into my right mind. Why do I go back? And so, God brings difficult things in our lives. He brings pinch points, fearful points to help us to open up our eyes to the fact that we're not trusting Him in some area of our life. That we think we're fine, but really we're naked and ashamed. Maybe we don't even realize it. That we think we're free, but really we're under bondage and shackles and we think we're going to an oasis, but really we're running into a desert. I love uh, one of my favorite books in the Chronicles of Narnia series is, is The Horse and His Boy, and everyone makes fun of me for it, and that's fine, but I think it's brilliant. <laughs> but there's a, a, a thing that happens in that story. Whereas as the, the boy is making his, his journey, the, a lion can, he continues to stalk him. If you've read the story, you, you know what I'm talking about. The lion continues to stalk him from a distance, and he's afraid of this lion, and it keeps driving him certain directions. You know, maybe he wants to go this way, but there's a lion, and so he goes that way. Well, come to find out, 
the entire time. Well, I don't want to, oh, man, I'm going to ruin the story for you. Come to find out, the lion is Aslan. Creating fear in order to get him to go where it's actually safer. Maybe that fear in that area is actually a thing that God is doing to cause you to avoid what could be worse. Fearful circumstances become opportunities to open our eyes to the bondage of sin that we are in. It's scary. Friends, look, Christians, church, repentance is difficult and scary. Confessing sin is scary. It's embarrassing. It feels it feels like you're taking all your clothes off in front of someone, right? If I can use that image, it's, 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 it's so hard to do. And yet it turns out that it is actually the first step in the process of putting our clothes on, of getting rid of our nakedness and our shame of sin. To do what Ephesians 4 says, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and true holiness. Listen, some of you are neck deep in sin right now. You're neck deep in sin. You're living amongst the tombs. You've put the shackles back on your hands and your feet, and you don't need to have them on your hands and your feet. And you're seized with fear, you're, the fear of what it might cost you if you confess where you're actually at in this moment, in that area of your life. But friends, you don't need to fear because you have a Savior who loves you, who came to the earth and who died for you, who, who is ready to forgive you if you would just fall on your feet or at His feet. He's ready to free you if you just fall at his feet. Some of you are, are not yet Christians. And maybe you've seen people's lives who, who have been changed by Christ. You've seen the remarkable thing that, that Christ has done. You wouldn't even deny it. You'd say, yeah, Christ, man, I, that person, Christ transformed. That person, I don't, know, I don't know what it is, but I know that they've started believing in Jesus and they started going to church, they started doing these things and suddenly their life was very much different and, and you would recognize that, but you also recognize the things that they gave up and you don't want to give them up. And you don't realize just how imprisoned you are, how on the verge of the abyss you are actually living. Friends, there is a cost to following Christ. You'll have to lose the things that bind you. You'll have to take off the chains and shackles, throw them aside. You'll no longer get long vacations in the desert. You'll get to sit at Jesus' feet instead. You'll have to do that instead. You'll no longer feel out of control, but controlled by Christ. There's things that following Jesus will cost you. But the cost of not Jesus is insanity. 
So there's the third question I want you to consider this morning. Is Jesus slow or are we hesitant? Jesus gets in the boat. He goes back across. People are waiting for him. Crowds are waiting for him. And in this final scene, we actually, we have one story that's actually embedded inside of another story, and I think very intentionally so. It's no mistake that Jesus is interrupted by this bleeding woman. And we know this because we can recognize a few connecting points in the story. First of all, you have Jairus's daughter, and you have a woman that Jesus at the end of the story, addresses as daughter, which is uncommon. Jairus's daughter is 12 years old. The woman has been bleeding for 12 years. Jairus's daughter is at risk of death. The loss of blood in the woman would have been seen as a loss of life from her body, and it was a terminal illness. Nothing could stop it. The healing of Jairus's daughter is delayed by the healing of this bleeding woman. And so we see that the story, it's not just happenstance that Jesus is doing this and it happened to be that this happened that interrupted him. And the, it's actually all a woven together very uh, specifically and providentially by Christ to reveal something to us. And I imagine Jairus saying something like, Lord, it's my only daughter. She's only 12 years old. Would you please heal her? And I imagine the, the woman praying something like, God, I've dealt with this for 12 years. Won't you finally heal me? I've spent everything I have trying to fix this issue. I'm at the end of my rope. I have no other options. Won't you please? I've been praying for 12 years. At least that's what I'd be saying. But I think the issue here is, is a little bit different than the past two scenes. See, see these, these people come to Jesus right away. They're willing to do whatever he says. But I think the issue here, it's not an issue of the object of the faith. It's not an issue of the extent of the faith. But it's an issue about the intensity of their faith. The depth of their faith, if you will. And Jesus is headed to heal Jairus' daughter when the woman sneaks up from behind and touches the gar his garment and, and, and is healed instantly, it says. And it's not like the garment is somehow magical or something, you know. It, we're told that lots of people are pressing in on Jesus, lots of people are touching him. They don't have similar experiences, but, but this woman very specifically touches, recognizing, believing that that. In some way, touching his garment will solve her problem. But she doesn't immediately come before him and ask. So Jesus stops to identify this very specific situation, right? He could have just kept walking. I mean, do we really believe that he didn't know exactly who touched his garment? Do we really think that that he could heal a woman who just touched his garment and that he couldn't identify who that woman was? That he could identify that power had left him in that very particular moment, but he couldn't go, yeah, and it was you. He could have just kept walking. 
and gone, yep. Yep, I know you were healed. Thank you. Know, good job. Thank you, Father, for healing that woman back there. And he could have gotten to Jairus' daughter long before she died. But doesn't. He's, he's willing to put Jairus' daughter at risk, if you will, in order to have this interaction with this woman. Because it's not just about healing her. Friends, this is what I want you to understand. It's not just about your situation being fixed. It's not just about what God is doing around you. It's about what God is doing in you. So he stops. Jesus' delay isn't because he doesn't care, because he doesn't realize, you know, the, the, the gravity of the situation or that uh, the daughter's about to die any moment. He's, he's intentionally creating a situation that would drive their faith, their faith deeper. He, it's as if he's saying, you trusted me when you were facing the bears and the lions, but I want you to see that you can depend on me when you face Goliath. Church, you, you know that you can trust Jesus when you face the bears and the lions because you've gone through that, you've been there, but Jesus wants you to know that you can trust him when you face Goliath. Jesus stops to look for the person who touched him. Hey, who touched me? Peter, Peter being Peter. I mean, it's not an unreasonable response. I mean, like, we'd probably all say the same thing if we had the guts to say something. Peter at least has guts to say something. Hey, you know, Jesus, I don't know if you realize, but like there's a lot of people around and they're all kind of bumping up against us. We went to a, a, a New Year's Eve deal in Manhattan. You know, they have the little apple that drops on down there on, on the points or whatever. Well, not some points, it's down in Aggieville. At any rate, um, it was the worst experience of my life. There were so many people. Everyone's touching you. You can't move. It's just horrible. I imagine this is like what, I, Jesus, that... That's a cross enough to bear, you know. Jesus had to deal with that all the time. But So the woman realizing, look, he's going to be able to identify me. She's no fool. That she's not hidden, it says in verse 47. She comes trembling. Trembling, not, not I don't think, in fear of him because he just healed her. But why is she so afraid? Her issue is an embarrassing one. She doesn't want to fall at his feet to ask for healing in front of everyone, in front of the crowds, because she'd actually have to say what she's needing to be healed from. It's unclean. It's embarrassing. And it says, though she's afraid in the light of Jesus, she finds the courage to declare in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Listen, if Satan can't get us with the first hindrance to our faith, that is taking our eyes off of Jesus, if he can't get us with his second hindrance to faith, that is to trust in our own ideas rather than uh, to trust in a good Savior and what he commands, then he'll get us with the third hindrance. You know what it is? Fear of man. Fear of other people's opinions. 
Make us care more about the opinions of the crowd than the opinion of Christ. It's sort of Satan's uh, it's a secret play. When all else fails, he pulls that out and he knows it's going to work. I think we want to tell ourselves that it's the actual threat of pain or of suffering or the fear of loss or something else that occupies our greatest fears. But my guess is that actually it's the fear of man that looms largest in all of our hearts. A man will do the boldest act, risking his very life if people are cheering him on. And then he'll fail to do the smallest righteous deed because he merely thinks that someone may, may disapprove. All of Israel's soldiers were prepared to die in battle. And Goliath steps out mocking them and saying, just send one, just one out to fight me. You're telling me that they were, they, were, they were hesitant to go out and fight Goliath because they might die? They were all there prepared to die for Israel. They were afraid to go out and be the guy who died in front of everyone else. They were afraid of failing in front of their peers. They were afraid of Goliath's mocking words. And frankly, so often, so are we. The irony is that it's only when we courageously come before Christ not because we have an inflated view of ourselves, but because our faith is in Him that we hear Him say lovingly, daughter, your faith has made well, made you well. When you rest in the one who can heal what is terminal in you, it doesn't matter what other people think. He says, go in peace, and you go in peace no matter what other people say. And this is repeated in the closing scene. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Only believe and she will be healed. And as they walk up, what does it say happens? Everyone is weeping and everyone is mourning. And Jesus says, oh, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. She's just sleeping like I was sleeping in the boat earlier. She's not dead. And it says they laughed at him, knowing she was dead. And actually, they were right. She was dead. But Jesus had a different plan. And there are going to be times when we repeat things that Jesus clearly said, when we say things that God's Word clearly says, when we do things that God's Word clearly commands us to do, and, 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 and people will say, that's foolish. That thing is dead. God's Word can't work in that. I mean, God's Word is good, but they'll come up with any reason. Oh, it must not mean that, or it must not work in that situation, or you really haven't experienced this, so you wouldn't know how, you know, it's, it really is. This is what works, they'll tell you. And they'll mock you for obeying Christ. And they'll laugh at you. And frankly, a lot of the people who will laugh at you call themselves Christians. In church, you need to be prepared for that that oftentimes it'll be other Christians who are actually mocking you for obeying God's word. 
Sadly, the woman wasted all she had trying to get, trying to use everyone else's methods. And listen, if you haven't trusted Christ yet, I want you to ask you this. Have all the other things that you've tried worked? Have they worked? Maybe the problem isn't that Jesus doesn't care about you, but but that you're unwilling to boldly reach out and touch his robe. Why? Because people will laugh at you? Because it's embarrassing? Who cares? Who cares if people will laugh at you if right now you're dead? And Christian, when things are easy and we can... You know, it's easy to go along with others. No courage is needed, but listen, Jesus wants more for you than a timid faith. The rock climber doesn't develop strength to climb the mountain without hanging off of a few cliffs, right? When we're courageous for Christ, it develops confidence, not in ourselves, but in Him, and He shows Himself worthy, and we remember, you know, the Holy Spirit's got us. Listen, our fears do not reveal shortcomings in Jesus' care, but shortcomings in our faith. It's not despite fearful circumstances, but through them that God grows our faith, that He wakes us up, not just because, not just to care for us. He doesn't just wake us up to, He wakes us up to who He is. We have a bigger vision a bigger view, a bigger understanding of all that He is, that, that, that our problems are big, but we have a Savior who's much, much bigger. And he shows us that being in our right mind is, is trusting and obeying His commands, that that's the most sane thing that we can do, that we, puts us through fearful circumstances that we could find that our confidence in Him actually grows rather than diminishes. He does this because He cares for us. He wants us to know that we don't have to fear the wind and the waves, and we can transform every area. He can transform every area of our life, and He can take us from death and shame and give us life and help us to think rightly. He heals and He gives us peace that transcends the opinions of others and the problems that we face. But until things are made right or good, it's not the absence of fear that we're after, but it's the presence of faith in Him that sees us through. That's what we need.